Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome to Blueprints, Jack. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Jack Ross. I'm a reporter in Los Angeles, and I cover unhoused issues, tenant organizing, landlord abuse, and um, whatever else kind of comes my way. But my my beat is the city. I like to think of it as, as that. So um, I'm really, really grateful to be here today. We appreciate it because I actually... I imagine this is how we found one another, but I recently shared your article on encampment, we call them evictions, clearings that are done by either the police or municipal authorities. And you focused in on one of the particular damages, like we talk about the kind of generally how that would impact an individual and a group and and whatnot, but do you want to tell us a little bit about the article you most recently wrote and how that kind of intersects a lot of issues we can then unpack from there? Yeah, totally. I, I felt the same way about this story um, that I that I drove at an intersection. But basically, so this story is about encampment. We call them sweeps um, or actually technically the city and the county call them um, involuntary displacements, <laughs> I think, is there, you know, they have a, a few different... Um, Terms. At least they uh, acknowledge it's involuntary. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Well, sometimes they're called re- encampment resolutions as well. Um, oh, that's much kinder. That's yeah, really washed. Right. Out. Yeah. So, um, uh, so we call them sweeps. You guys call them encampment evictions, which I think is a great term. And I, I don't. I think that that gets at it more. Uh, I think that's a, that's probably a better phrase. Um, but uh, basically, you know, what we have. The situation in LA where um, uh, there's a ton of state-funded Narcan and Naloxone going out to encampments, uh, and it's a lot of it is getting seems to be getting thrown away in encampment sweeps. That you know the the city of Los Angeles sweeps about you know uh, dozens of encampments conservatively every single weekday in Los Angeles. They're simply relentless and. Um, People outside the city and even people in the city who aren't paying attention or aren't aren't paying attention to the sweeps or aren't reading about how often they're happening, they, they don't realize just how regular they are. You know, it's not kind of uncommon to be driving around the city and just come across sanitation crews that are, you know, probably wrapping up the, you know, bulldozing operation they've just conducted um, of a bunch of people's homes under a highway or wherever. Um, and they're probably wrapping up because you're probably not up at dawn, which is when they begin typically. So unsurprisingly, really, you know, I was shocked to hear this, that, you know, harm reduction groups and mutual aid groups were saying, you know, we're losing naloxone. We're losing Narcan all the time to encampment sweeps. And that shocked me, even though, I learned that talking to harm reduction groups because I was writing a, another story about um, encampment sweeps, uh, bulldozing, get, getting rid of tents and warm clothes in the winter. 
So we have really actually quite a severe um, like winter weather problem for the unhoused in LA because we the city never built out a shelter system the way shelter systems are were built out in colder places out of necessity because the cold kills people. Um, we didn't do that here. We got uh, bad news for you on that one. Okay, Jack, yeah. we, our shelter systems are beyond capacity <clears throat> as well. And that's the case in LA too. Um, so that, yeah, that makes sense, right? Um, I'm sure the cold is killing unhoused people all over the place. You know, the stat that gets thrown around in LA is that more people in, you know, some recent years, um, and I believe this is, this is continued more people have died of hypothermia and more unhoused people have died of hypothermia in LA than in New York and San Francisco combined. So two kind of one much colder place and one much wetter place in LA. Um, anyway, the point is, you know, um, that the city is, does not give out tents, does not give out tarps, does not give out sleeping bags, does not give out sweaters in the winter and in our long global warming driven atmospheric rivers that have been drenching the city the last two years. We've had two 1,000 once in a thousand year storms in a row, the city is not giving out warm supplies. It's actually throwing them away, right? It's going out systematically, going around the city and throwing away tents, throwing away blankets, throwing away sweaters. Um, so I was writing about that. And then I was shocked to hear that, you know, at the end of that story, the organizer said, you know, they also throw out naloxone. And I was like, what? Uh, somehow... And they're like, well, yeah, you know, that's no different, right? Like throwing out a tent kills an unhoused person and throwing out their Narcan throws out, kills an unhoused person. But I just hadn't, to me, the, the idea of the city going around and throwing out naloxone that's funded by the state was just unfathomable. I couldn't believe it. Well, and to be fair, it's more obvious a life-saving measure, right? Especially to people who do have a home or a shelter over their head. Sometimes we don't look at sleeping bags and tents as life-saving things, but absolutely they are. But, but naloxone, I mean, that's just kind of like in your face, life-saving, especially considering the opioid crisis that every place in the United States and Canada is experiencing. I was going to say every city, but it's so beyond that. So that that's especially disheartening. It kind of compounds everything. Yeah. And to, and because I've harped on, um, like winter gear, um, you know, I think I'll, I'll talk about naloxone too. And, and the, you know, what, this, as I started looking into this, like the situation that we find, especially in places like Skid Row where, um, you know, overdose deaths outpaced, like the, the increase in overdose deaths, um, in recent years, it increased by about a thousand percent in Skid Row. Um, and that blows away the national increase in overdose deaths by about a thousand percent, right? You know, because it's more, uh, the overdose, overdose has increased nationally in the U.S. by more than 50 percent over that period. So, you know, we're talking about one of the epicenters, the absolute epicenters of um, the American opioid crisis. And then of those overdose deaths in Skid Row, um, about 70% involved naloxone or involves fentanyl, excuse me, which is the the synthetic opioid that's that's become famous because it's so, so, so potent. Um, and it's about 50 times stronger than heroin um, as an opioid. And um, it's really deadly. So, you know, 
and to be clear too, like this, this article didn't just focus on Skid Row, right? So um, it's also looking at the Valley, you know, where, um, you know, all over the city where, where Narcan is being thrown away and where people are dying of drug overdoses. And what you find is like, as I said, like the government is not just absent, like they're working against people. So uh, what you find is drug users who are heroes, like who are heroes and are saving each other's lives constantly with naloxone um, while the government stands by or throws their naloxone away. So it's quite stark and it really explodes our ideas of, I guess, all of the moralizing around drug use. It's like, well, you know, the people, it's cops, sanitation workers, people who are sober and people who are living inside and who are employed, all of these um, criteria that, you know, we, we tend to lend more dignity to in the U.S., they're working against unhoused, un, often unemployed drug users who are like full-time lifesavers. I mean, there's a woman in Skid Row who's, who I spoke with who's, she says, I, I reverse an overdose once a month. Is that the same woman you show nailing bags of naloxone to the telephone post, to the, the public kind of post so that they won't get caught up in the sweeps. That's actually someone else. That's Virginia Riley, who's also, um, she works with the same organization. But yeah, so she, you know, in the midst of kind of this fentanyl spike, this um, unhoused woman, Virginia Riley, and she works for a nonprofit called the Sidewalk Project. They began nailing Narcan to trees in Skid Row to get it everywhere it could possibly be but also to prevent sanitation crews from destroying it when they clear encampments, right? Um, so they call that the tree of life. So I, I think that probably the majority of our audience knows what naloxone is, but just in case, could you explain what it is and also how much it costs in the U.S.? Yeah, totally. So um, naloxone was first – it was first – the, the creators of naloxone first applied for a patent in 1961, so it's been around for quite a while. It's an opioid antagonist, uh, so it binds to the opioid. It's a it's a medicine that you know a chemical compound that binds to the opioid receptors in our brains, and basically displaces the opioids from those sites and reverses an overdose. Um, it res quickly restores breathing to the body, you know, and it's um, it reverses nine out of ten opioid overdoses. Um, it comes in several different forms. You know, it can be injectable uh, or it can be a nasal spray, which is its kind of most common, most prevalent form, the brand name, one brand of which is called Narcan. It's quite effective. You know, it people call it a miracle drug because it brings people back to life. I mean, there's no greater miracle. There really isn't. And that's what it does. And how much does it cost? Sorry, yeah. So uh, currently... It's available over the counter, um, but the prices fluctuate based on where you buy it. So it can be anywhere from currently between fifty and one hundred and fifty dollars over the counter, based on some aggregators online. It's also available online for a little less than fifty dollars. Fifty dollars, right? Most unhoused people don't have access to a computer or have a mailbox, right? So they're going to be buying it at pharmacies. Um, either way, you know that's too much for unhoused people to buy it in bulk. Um, See, I, I, I kind of set that one up because that was one thing that was shocking to me when I was reading the article was the fact that, you know, this is this costs money uh, because I'm used to the concept of uh, naloxone being free at pharmacies. Right. Um, you know, I have 
naloxone in multiple parts of my apartment just just in case, you know. I, I, I They give it out for free at tons of festivals and different places. Like the idea that this is not something that would be readily available to me is beyond shocking. Like, Yeah, that's that's the u.s i guess that's such a great point and i didn't even think about that um uh yeah it's it sure isn't free here um and the state is spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to give it out right um and then also like there are bills to get naloxone to require naloxone in you know bars and and um public places that are like literally not passing the legislature for some reason um so, yeah, <laughs> not for some reason, the story you're talking about is such a huge intersection of stigma, right? Like between unhoused people and drug users, like, holy shit, like that is these are the scapegoats for society in general, right? That and, and migrants, right? So it's no wonder that municipal authorities have kind of taken this attitude. I mean, it's horrific, but knowing what we know, it's not all that surprising, except the numbers you're giving me. I just, they're kind of breaking my heart a little bit. I want to get a handle on it. Like dozens or a dozen encampment evictions. Dozens, dozens, plural. A day. So this is a system that they have. They also have a system of trying to hand out naloxone and, so they know what they're doing. It's, it, you know, it's not like, yeah, oops, we cleared an encampment and we weren't really uh, versed in what happens when we do that, right? Like we, No, absolutely. This that, is yeah. something they're trained in and, and workers are doing absolutely all day, every day. Yeah, it's, it's like really important to say that, you know, like from, I, I think it's, it's really, it's the, the, the way LA works is, you know, it's divided into council districts and there's like a shockingly low number of them. It's like 15 council districts. Um, and the, the council member who, you know, basic who runs their district, they have broad authority over who gets swept and who doesn't. It's totally up to them. Um, so, you know, yes, it is, it has been public knowledge for a very long time that encampment sweeps kill. And there's been a really robust movement in Los Angeles coming out of the pandemic and, and preceding it over encampment sweeps, you know, um, there was a really high profile uh, encampment sweep in in Echo Park in, in 20, early 2021 that, um, you know, with a local council member sent in riot cops and arrested who arrested journalists. I was nearly arrested um, and, um, you know, cleared a bunch of tents. Yeah, it, it, it made national news. And, you know, um, so, that, yeah, there's, you know, there's a robust movement like Council members, you know, um, have for I, this is still broadly the case, but, you know, it was really it was really the case in the early years of the pandemic. You know, council members couldn't really show their faces in public a lot of time or, or they could expect to run into activists who would scream at them about killing unhoused people. Um, and rightly so. And they would just run away. Um, you know, there was a huge protest in City Hall that got uh, city council meeting shut it shut down. An unhoused woman was um, almost arrested and tasered, and riot cops literally flooded the meeting and you know closed off the crowd between the horseshoe where all the council members sit and the audience, um, you know, who were chanting about sweeps. Like that's that's where we're at in LA, and um, 
um, these sweeps continue unabated. You could see us smirking, right? We're smirking at each other behind your back a little bit, Jack. So, you tell him. Sound familiar? <laughs> Everything you're saying is like almost verbatim our experiences here. Like, you know, 2021 right. was first the year of like a lot of high profile encampment experience. I didn't almost get arrested, but I almost got pepper sprayed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that one then. Um, and, you know, I got kicked out of City Hall uh, after when a, 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 a bunch of activists were protesting um, the lack of any funding for shelters or um, housing for the unhoused population of Toronto. That, that that wasn't that long ago. Like everything you're saying feels like it's a direct parallel to what's going yeah. on here. And I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. I know it's absolutely um, it. It's funny, right? Like I, I, this issue just seems to span countries and cities and it's the same everywhere. And it's often liberal politicians who, you know, um, are, you know, you know, who are, who are doing this, not even Republicans, right? Or as we say in the US, right wingers. Oh, we've got a story for you, Jack. People work really hard in this city. Uh, we're mostly based out of Toronto worked really hard to elect a very progressive mayor. Like we have, we have more shades of color on our spectrum, although not really. They, they start to blend together like Republicans and Democrats do. But um, this, this was very promising, you know, and housing advocates back them. And it's just been a disaster. It has not slowed down encampment evictions. I could go on. This isn't about her today, but <laughs> I, I'm dismayed at the similarities. Usually like, oh, I can relate, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not appreciating this right now because I'm just, I do appreciate your presence and your knowledge. It, just the idea that this is replicated right across North America. That's disheartening, you know, and it's, it's clearly a model that they're following and it's not just a fluke. Yeah. Sure. And it's, I mean, it's just fully, everyone knows, everyone knows. And, and the politicians know because activists are really, really aggressive about telling them. A lot of my stories that I've written, you know, when I started out as a journalist, I thought I would have to be a detective and, um, you know, find my scoops by being really smart and, you know, outrunning the rest of the journalists. Um, and then it turned out like actually, you know, my, my, I think the stories I'm most proud of and the stories that have had the most gotten the most attention have all been stories that, um, you know, activist groups, uh, were sounding the alarm, had been sounding the alarm about for years and holding press conferences about. And when I showed up, you know, they were like, I guess you can call this a scoop, but you're about two years late. And I was like, Oh yeah, right. Okay. Well let's write it anyway. And then, you know, I'd go up and I was like, what? i had never heard about this. Um, so yeah, tip to journalists out there, like the worst crimes everyone knows about and no one cares about. Um, so if you choose to care, you can get scoop. Um, though I wouldn't call it that because that would, you know, that implies that you did any work of your own to uncover what everyone already knew. <laughs> I have to ask because, you know, the idea of running around to try and chase a story before someone else gets to it is, yeah. is almost a comical concept to me here in Toronto because, um, our media has collapsed to such a point where the idea that anybody 
with any sort of major platform would be trying to cover the same stories that I'm trying to cover is almost a joke because they're never there. Most right. of the things I show, they're they're just not there. They they don't cover local issues. They cover larger issues. But the what's actually going on in the city, what's actually going on in people's lives, never, uh, never at all. So like, I guess, how is the state of media for you guys out there? It's not great. Um, it's collapsing. You know, I think that was also like, you know, that was somewhat naive of me to begin with, um, you know, when I was starting out. But, you know, we have like we have, I think, more of a media ecosystem than, you know, a lot of areas. Um, but the, like, you know, layoffs are currently devastating the L.A. Times. Um, you know, layoffs are devastating our NPR affiliates. Um, and, um, you know, outside like the liberal media or, um, kind of, there's, you know, kind of a ragtag group of like leftist freelancers and people who have different, um, you know, different kind of homes for their writing. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's this kind of the ecosystem, um, so it's it's a little bit better, but yeah, it's still like probably not going to get scooped. I mean, it depends what you're writing about, but um, the uh, unfortunately, you know, I mean, this is this is another thing for for journalists is like, um, please don't go to J school. Please just become a local freelancer because <laughs> are you are you going to J school, Santiago? He's almost done. I'm, He's almost I'm done. I'm in my last year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, but. <laughs> I think American J school is a bit more expensive. Probably. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I think so, my whole thing costs like fifteen k max. Okay, well then you, that's that sounds great. Yeah, that's like <laughs> a couple of days of school in America. Keep um, going, Santiago. Yeah, keep going. Um, but in in okay, American journalists who aren't in Canada, where school is cheaper. Um, I mean, J school, like you'll you'll learn a lot, you know. But like, also, like, you probably don't need to in America because you can just become a free, local freelancer and um, and cover, you know, these beats that like no one is on. Um, I, I'm trying to think like what Berkeley Journalism School costs. It's gonna it's gonna be more surprising than the naloxone stats. I, I, won't, I won't look it up. <laughs> Make Santiago feel better about yeah. <laughs> putting no, his time it's in. A, it's a different I imagine situation. he learned a lot of what not to do as well, at least for for his angles. But <laughs> you have. I mean, I, I would have loved to have gone. You know, I would have loved to have teachers. I don't. I don't have teachers. You know, I, like my teachers were on Twitter, um, and I had to like figure everything out. So, like, I would have loved to have gone to J school. Um, it just, you know, it, it, in the U.S., it just doesn't often make sense, and people still do it because it's still really helpful. <laughs> yeah, and I can't imagine also it being a very expensive um, program to study, and then the fact that there's no money in journalism right now whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a hard just, sell. It's a hard it's, sell. Oof. I'm looking at a bit of the work that you've done recently, and it seems to be centered around housing. Is that would you say that that's predominantly your your focus? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Were you an advocate um, before a journalist? Uh, no, I've never been an activist or an organizer. I've never been an organizer. When you when you look at like the real issues that are hurting people in the city, you know, real issues that are killing people, um, then people call you a communist, you know, um, because 
it turns out like which is funny because then that gives away their politics the politics of the like voice from nowhere centrist journalist which is like well if writing honestly about crimes is political to you then what are you doing how is writing you know you claim to be writing honestly but not about these crimes and you say that's not political but if if what i'm doing is political then doesn't that go for you too so yeah so you know to me like i, I don't write in a voice that um opinionates but I, I do cover issues that um i think speak from the you know place me on the left very much all journalism is advocacy right and all journalism is political because what your your job is to identify problems and that is a political decision what you think is a problem versus what someone else thinks is a problem is political um, so when you write about unhoused people and when you write about renters and when you write about policing and you write about poverty in LA or anywhere um, that that does you know place you on the left even though the subjects and the stories that you're writing are, you know, from an objective standpoint, like these are massive, massive issues and they all need to be written about. And, you know, um, I, I think it's kind of amazing how like that gets, um, it's, it's very, it's very exposing of, you know, I think the ideologies of, of some journalists who could, that they consider these not to be major issues, you know, because what, what issues are they focused on that they consider to be major issues? There are issues affecting homeowners. There are issues affecting rich people, right? So that's, that's politics. That's politics all day long. Yeah, it's, it's quite an ironic thing, you know. Like I, I've heard throughout my coming up in journalism, you know, established people say things along the lines of, you know, the job of a journalist is to afflict the comfortable and, comfort, and comfort the afflicted, right? Well, isn't that exactly what, like, who, who who exactly is the comfortable and who exactly is the afflicted? And why is it that we always seem to give the comfortable people a voice and they're always the ones who get the, you know, get their quotes and their press releases and whatever, you know, right at the top of every story? And why are we not talking to the people who are actually the most afflicted in our societies, right? Like, it's... Absolutely. It, it, it's ironic that how many journalists I know who... They truly, they drink the Kool-Aid, you know, like they believe that they are objective. They believe that they do not have a stance. And you look at their writing and it's like, no, 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 you clearly have a stance. You just don't even know what it is. Like you do not understand it because you don't see the status quo because you're a part of it. You don't yeah. see that. Our bias is often invisible, especially if you've not done any work to kind of unpack it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'm absolutely like I'm writing from the left, you know, like my hero is Mike Davis, um, who as, you know, kind of a local legend. Do you guys know Mike Davis's work at all? Um, he was a he was a pioneering, you know, um, socialist journalist in L.A. who wrote about inequality and policing really persuasively. And the thing about Mike Davis is that like um, his major book, City of Courts, you know, when it came out. Uh, it was sort of famous for um, because he wrote about policing in South Central and like p painted this apocalyptic image of Los Angeles that like really upset um, property owners and uh, real estate brokers and um, politicians like really, really upset them. And then the Rodney King uprisings happened you know, not long after. And then he was like, suddenly, you know, the, the media kind of freaked out. They're like, who is this prophet? 
who is this guy? You know, and it's, and he was like, I'm not a prophet. Like you guys are just not paying attention. You know, he's like, I he's. But when you look at policing, when you look at poor neighborhoods, like this is what you find, and then you're not surprised when there's a revolution. You're not surprised at all. Um, you need to be like covering Beverly Hills as aggressively as you you guys were to be surprised that something happened here. Um, so it's a little similar where, you know, I think, you know, when you cover issues, um, when you, when you honestly cover the biggest issues in the city, you know, or anywhere in America or, or the West or across the world, um, that, that ends up, you end up writing from the left, um, by virtue of what you consider important. I wonder if you're able to get the city to comment on that story. I apologize if you've included it in the article and I, I, I missed it, but what do they have to say? What do authorities have to say? Obviously, they've, they're used to defending the sweeps itself, but the fact that, forget people for a second, they're handing out something they're then destroying from a monetary perspective, from a budgetary, like, do they have any statements to this or do they just try to ignore you and hope the story gets no traction? They seem to do that. Yeah, the county the county commented and, and distanced itself and said, you know, that this was um, a bad practice. Um, but I wrote to 20, or almost, I wrote to 19 uh, politicians at the local and state level, you know, including the mayor of LA, including the governor of LA, um, asking, you know, do you think that throwing away naloxone in an overdose crisis is bad? And no one uh, except one council member in L.A. wrote back to me uh, and said it was. Um, the mayor, when I asked, so there was a really major sweep in L.A. where uh, about 100 units of Narcan were thrown away by sanitation crews. And a local council member was there that morning. And it also followed two days of a mayoral motel placement operation. So the mayor, you know, I asked the mayor for comment on the story and a bunch of different questions. And all, all she would say was, I don't know, we don't know anything about that naloxone that got thrown away. Uh, we didn't throw it away and we, and we don't know anything about it. She wouldn't comment on this practice at all. Um, and the local council member who was there that day, her name's Imelda Padilla also, I called her office four or five times, multiple emails, and, and she, she would never comment on this. So, you know, uh, the other thing that's worth mentioning is like the Department or the Bureau of Sanitation, which which sweeps encampments in the city. Um, they said, "This is very important." Um, they said, "We don't throw away naloxone. We, when we encounter unattended naloxone at encampment sweeps, we send it to storage." So the there are ten storage sites across the city. So you know the city's best case scenario here. Is not that they're like the, the they're what they're insisting that they're doing that they think is good is systematically right sweeping dozens of cabinets every day in the city and when they encounter Narcan in an opioid crisis they're taking it and sending it somewhere else that's um, that's the best case scenario now until what it expires and yeah uh, for, they hold it for ninety days and um, unhoused people ostensibly are able to go pick it up now the city is being. You know, this is sort of like... Do they, sorry to interrupt, do they do that with other belongings or specifically like medications? They claim to. Or they, they claim um, to. But, um, but you described bulldozers. Yeah. Um, th there's an ongoing litigation over the fact that they, you know, where a lawsuit is accused the city of, of not storing 
uh, belongings. And it's among unhoused people and, and mutual aid groups, they're like, we never get anything back. You know, um, it's that they say that, but everything is destroyed at the site of the sweep. Those 100 units of, of Narcan that were destroyed, you know, unhoused people watch those go in a, in a trash compressor and get crushed in a, in a garbage truck. Um, so, you know, it, it's a claim they make. And then so what I did was I actually went to storage and asked um, the guy at the counter of the main storage site in the city if, you know, um, it, had he ever seen any naloxone? And he was like, naloxone? I've never seen any naloxone here. They, uh, his quote is, was basically like, they don't send that to us. They throw it away. They discard it. Um, I was like, really? You never, you know, they say they're sending it here. They say they're sending Narcan that they're collecting in sweeps to storage. He's like, no, 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 they're, they're destroying it. Um, so that's the guy running the storage site. <laughs> so, um, that, that, that's the feedback in the city. I think they, they figured just nobody will hold them accountable for the plight of drug users and unhoused people. They can just simply tell them that, oh, we don't take and destroy their stuff. When there's community members sitting around watching, sometimes documenting the destruction. I mean, our, our city authorities don't even pretend to do that, although... They would. They won't cede the involuntary tag. Uh, they pretend to persuade everyone to go to a shelter system that has no room for them, or you know, emergency three-day shelter, so that they can say they put everybody under a roof. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So we're actually a step behind that. Yeah, in. you know, um, as of the the most recent mayor like started doing these motel placements, which are really controversial too. But. Um, you know, before then, I mean, for for years and years in this homelessness crisis, um, which we've had for decades, but has exploded, um, you know, since like the last 10 years or so, you know, for, for much of that, there was literally no city plan to, um, you know, the, the, the city was just was just sweeping people with no answer to where they would go. I mean, there were some lip service answers, like they're supposed to be... Um, they're supposed to be connected with, with placements, but um, there's there's research on that that, that, that never that, that never seems to happen. Of course not. Think of the logistics of dismantling dozens of sites every day and then trying to coordinate shelter placement. The city is not going to spend the resources to do that if we hear them not even willing to store the medication that they're already paying to hand out. That's the so it goes beyond like we see cities spending money on this right and so like let's talk about their motivations why why are they clearing encampments here in here in Canada especially in the colder weather encampment evictions are often justified by being a fire hazard right propane heaters are used or methods to cook with and rather than hand out fire retardant equipment, as they have been instructed to do by the courts, they let fire departments declare them unsafe. The city moves in and they save the neighborhood by removing. And obviously they are saving the unhoused people at the same time, right? Because it's cold. They shouldn't be in a tent. We're going to put them in a hotel for a couple days. We're going to destroy their tent, their sleeping bag, their naloxone, and then we're going to we know that they'll end up back on the street, right? But that's the premise that they use uh, when in reality it's, I guess, we've had a lot of theories, you know, as an anti-capitalist here on the show, it, 
there's real value to uh, remove them for property value reasons, to remove the sight of unhoused people as a reminder that our system does not work, right, and leave so many people like that, to criminalize being unhoused, to be able to exist outside of the system and outside the rental market. Like, there's just... But at least what are the L.A. authorities? What's their excuse for spending? Again, like, let's forget the human element, because that seems to not, like, fucking appeal to people, even though it should. What is their excuse to spend the resources to do this all day, every day? Like, they've got to have employed people that are just doing sweeps. Um, Yeah, it's very similar. Um, You do hear about fire. Um, you know, they'll, they'll cite that like fire risk. It's often, um, you know, this, and this is really rich in LA. Um, it's often, um, um, like disability, you know, ADA, like disability access. So they, they say they can't block sidewalks because you can't get, then you can't go down the sidewalk in a wheelchair, which is, um, ironic because the city does absolutely nothing to maintain its sidewalks or, you know, protect pedestrian, uh, access in any other situation, you know, um, like we have non-functional sidewalks. I mean, there's holes, you can't walk around LA very effectively. And even though many do, but like you, when you do, you often end up walking in the street because there's no sidewalk there. Um, and that's not being addressed, but you know, when there are tents blocking the sidewalk, that's what'll get cited. Um, is that where encampments tend to be? Like sometimes, on you the know, concrete? Yeah. Like, ours are usually in parks. Oh, yeah. Well, they they sweep the parks pretty aggressively, too, because, you know, kids need to play there. And um, so that um, that's what has happened. Yeah. So a lot of people end up living on the street or literally or, like, on sidewalks or, like, you know, you'll, you'll see encampments under, under bridges often, but, like, also... Um, like, you know, it kind of around blocks and alleys where, you know, there's not a lot of traffic. Um, but yeah, um, parks, they're pretty aggressive about, you know, the board, the beach here, Venice Beach got swept really aggressively. Um, so yeah, but it's, it's often um, the reasons they cite are like health reasons, uh, broadly, you know, like they throw a lot of stuff away because it's quote unquote contaminated. Um, uh, you know, uh, proximity to schools and daycares, um, is, is frequently cited, you know, um, but why do they do it? I, I, I agree with everything you said. I think like, um, property values is probably number one. I mean, that's always like ruled. Los Angeles for everything's about property value. Um, but also I do think it disturbs people to see this evidence of, um, like their system being broken and they, they'd rather disappear that evidence than actually, um, address the issue. How big are a lot of these? Cause it, it's happening with such frequency. How big are these encampments? You know, cause here, in Toronto, uh, people tend to, you know, come together to make, you know, bigger encampments for safety in public parks and, you know, the eye of everyone so that if they clear them, it has to be visible. That's a great question. Yeah, I think that that doesn't happen so much here because they're being they're being broken up so constantly. So like during the pandemic, there was kind of a pause. So they can't build community in that exactly. same way. Like that must be very difficult and part of the purpose. Exactly. It is part of the purpose. And, you know, what I wrote about is like on 
there's one there was one in such encampment where they got really organized and uh, in the valley uh, where this this Narcan was thrown away those hundred units of Narcan um, and you know it was cleared um, and targeted for its size so and yeah when encampments get larger they get targeted for their size for sure and um, the mayor now basically runs a program like placing it's called Inside Safe, and it's like designed to, to you know, resolve the largest encampments by moving people into motels. Um, and it has all its all sorts of issues with the program, um, but it's very much designed at you know it's to to um, break up the largest encampments for political reasons, you know, because those are, are the ones that get the most attention and outrage from, from homeowners. I'm reading a list of the articles that you have on your page there. And the first one kind of has me chuckling. You posted that earlier in, in January there, the LA housing department displaced from office by yes. landlord. <laughs> yes. uh, that, that seems like karma perhaps, but also really indicative that no one is safe from the, greed of, of landlords. It was really interesting one, that one, because, um, yeah, the, the housing department is tasked with stopping evictions and negotiating uh, disputes between tenants and landlords in the city and enforcing housing code and stuff like that. And uh, even they were, like, powerless to stop their own displacement um, when their landlord decided to lease their building to someone else. I wonder, we have something similar in Ontario. It's the Landlord Tenant Board, and it's notoriously awful you know, underfunded, but biased, like just not. It's a kangaroo court. That's a good description of it. Would you say you have something similar in the LA housing yeah, department? Yeah, the LA housing department's absolutely loathed by um, tenant activists. And it's it's like almost, it w if it wasn't so grim, it would be kind of funny because like the, all these people I know are just like obsessed with different um I don't know, obsessed with this governmental body that, you know, people don't necessarily know about and they're like always talking and they, like everyone's sort of taking up their jargon because they have to, you know, and it's like, well, the SCAP inspection didn't lead to REAP, even though there was a general manager's hearing. I'm like, why was that? Um, you know, you end up like in this very funny space of like government acronyms and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's very similar where, you know, another story I wrote that was hiding in plain sight was that, you know, they passed a tenant harassment law uh, in the city and the housing department was collecting thousands and thousands of complaints from tenants and was closing uh, all of them with basically with a form letter. Um, so, uh, you know, it was like this kind of non-starter program and it's still just the optics of a complaints yeah. department. Yeah, no, I think we'll definitely link people back to your work because one, they'll draw so many parallels from the experience the Canadian experience here, because it's definitely a model that unhoused folks and drug users are facing here, there, and everywhere. But you're writing, like you tr explained before, you kind of get there. Like, these are the bare facts. Read them as they are. Come to your own conclusion. And the conclusion is kind of obvious to me. So... Do you find that there's a lot of tenant organizing going on? That's a focus that we've done here on the show, and we see a trend happening, and we see real promise in it, too. We're going to explore that more. But I'm curious, is that a, a solution people are opting for in L.A.? Yeah. Um, there's a huge tenant movement in Los Angeles. Um, you know, by some estimates, I believe the Los Angeles Tenants Union is still 
um, the largest tenant union in the country. At least it was a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, it's booming. It's absolutely booming. Um, and um, I think it's it's a really exciting like frontier of activism in the city. Um, and um, you know, we'll see where the movement goes. Um, but you know, they have they hold huge marches and assemblies, and they're organizing against tenant harassment and um, they're organizing against evictions and, you know, um, it's a growing, it's a growing and powerful new force in the city that I think politicians are increasingly like having to reckon with. Santiago, as a journalism student, (laughs) you got any questions for Jack before we let him escape? Um, trying to think, cause I think we, we did address a lot of it. Um, I guess, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Jack, Jack, is there anything we haven't asked you that you're dying to talk to us about? I don't think so. I think we covered, we covered it all, um, pretty, pretty well. Yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised to hear like how many parallels there are between Canada and, and LA. Um, I'm sorry to hear that that they are i mean at least um that there are so many but it's really great to connect with you guys across the border and and um find out how much we have in common it does it it makes me think of like you know because it's it's clearly not just you know us uh because it and it's it's not just you know toronto it's across the country and i'm guessing it's across the country there too and it's like you know at some point we really need to bring everyone together into one spot and really make some noise, I think. Because, yeah, it's crazy. To ha- it's crazy that we're all dealing with the same bullshit. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's really messed up. Um, um, I think this is the first step. Like, I, you know, it's above my figure to figure out how to fight against the abuse of unhoused people who are cast out of the system in capitalism, but I think step one, and I think, I, I guess I just saw this effectively, you know, during the pandemic and it started to, I think, wane a little bit in LA, but I think step one is just spreading the word that sweeps are killing people. And, um, there's not justified on any grounds, but sanitation in the city. They're only ju- you know, they're, um, they're justified as like cosmetic basically. And people need to understand that because people don't realize, I think even, you know, um, people in the center left or the center, um, who see encampment sweeps in LA, um, think that they're inconveniences for unhoused people, but, and that life is hard when you don't have a home, but they don't understand how deadly they are and they need to. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've talking, I've spoken to people who have been through, you know, encampment evictions here, and it's deeply, deeply traumatic. I know people have been through it like eight, nine times, and just keep having to replace your belongings, and and you know the cosmetic thing that you were saying, like some of the excuses we've heard here are would be comical if they were not so malicious and cruel. Uh, you know, there was one, there was talks of one where they they wanted to clear a homeless encampment to install a memorial to to uh, people who die unhoused dead no. unhoused people. Oh my god! Yeah. 
uh that that was sorry it's just like old news for us so it's always refreshing to see like yes everyone (laughs) is just equally as enraged by that oh my god yeah that that might be the worst one i've ever heard that's crazy (laughs) Uh, and it it was uh in the courtyard of a church the encampment a church that was protecting them and wanted them oh my god it was yeah. That must have made we'll send news. We'll you the link of the episode we did. Oh, no, barely. <laughs> barely. Barely. I mean, uh, I'll say, like, there was media there in the morning of the encampment clearing, but they were long gone by the time that things actually happened, and there was very little actually written about it afterwards. It was very small news. And... uh yeah, no, it, you know, we've heard for for trees, like, you know, they got to cut down a tree, so they got to clear an encampment. We've, we've heard it all. We've heard all of the bullshit. Um, and, you know, that one was particularly cruel, too. It was the first snowfall of the year, um, that one. And so they were out clearing an encampment on the coldest day yet. And That's crazy. I think you guys can both see the importance of drawing light to this and the work that you two do in might not be technically activism, (laughs) but, you know, half the battle is people just don't know. You're right. Like they don't know the impact. The naloxone, though, has really got me on this one. Like even those hundred packets that you talked at one sweep, that's by the stats that you gave us earlier, where it can save nine out of 10 overdoses in a place that has a thousand times the overdose that it, it used to, that that's 90 people that's or 90 overdoses, 90. Also, it's, it's crazy to me that there's a a place in LA called Skid Row, like just because that's existed for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, it's always been sort of the, the unhoused district in the city. It has a really interesting history actually, um, where, you know, I mean, the history of sweeps is really fascinating, too, uh, in L.A. specifically. I recommend a great book that I I mentioned in this article called City of Inmates um, by Kelly Lytle Hernandez, um, who's a professor at UCLA. um, And it's it's a history of incarceration in L.A. But um, what she kind of looks at is, like, L.A. has always had a, a kind of disproportionately large system of incarceration compared to other cities. And the reason for that is because of unhoused people. Um, there were like, there was always a large unhoused population in LA because of itinerant labor in the West. So like people like logging and doing seasonal work in the American West would come to LA in the, um, in the off seasons for their work. And they would, a lot of them would live outside, um, in downtown LA and um, talk about media, <laughs> the behest of the LA Times, in, in a lot of cases, you know, the city, because the LA Times really ran the city in, in many ways. Um, they started, you know, the, the city was sweeping unhoused people into chain gangs that graded roads and paved, um, like, paved roads, graded roads, you know, cut holes in, in hillsides and, and built a lot of the infrastructure that we now um, use today, um, including uh, the downtown portion of a very famous road called Sunset Boulevard, um, which when Echo Park Lake was swept in 
2021, that major standoff where all those journalists were arrested, um, unhoused people were fleeing with tents onto Sunset Boulevard. So we literally had the situation where, you know, 100 years, 100 plus years later, after these chain gangs built and paved Sunset Boulevard and because they were swept into, into chain gangs, um, you know, politicians were sweeping unhoused people uh, in a, out of a park and onto the road that, that unhoused people built, right? So um, this is not new in LA. Thank you so much, Jack, for giving us that kind of cross-border, cross-coast example of just how horrible municipalities can behave to the unhoused community. And um, it's heartening, though, to hear that tenant organizing and, you know, uh, harm reduction groups are mounting a challenge, you know, and politically accosting the people responsible for this, because these are policy choices. And we can certainly call this social murder, right? The, the knowledge and the facts are there. Like you said, like you didn't uncover something. It's something that these people live and breathe every day. It's just common knowledge to them. It's just no one's listening until you folks uh, kind of blow it up a little bit. I imagine they're grateful to see you at some of those press conferences, right? They can be slim pickings for uh, mainstream media and, and folks put their hearts out there and do all that work and try to draw attention. And so uh, even if it was old news, I bet you they were so happy to see you and, and have you kind of cling on to that story um, with the importance that it, it holds to them, you know, like not just a, a side note because an, a sweep blew up into arrest, but drawing importance to the small ones and the systemic impact that it has. So thank you for that work. It's important and taking the time to talk to us about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.